0: Welcome church. I'm glad that you're here and ready for an exciting series about the attributes of God. So I'm extremely excited about this and guess what? We are actually for the first time doing this simultaneously with our Spanish service. So kind of the way we were doing this before when we did Lamentations, it was a little bit condensed. It was a little bit broad and general uh, to a certain level, although sometimes we did go deep in lamentation, But this is our Bible study. And so as a church, when we do Bible study, especially in our Wednesday nights for uh, our Spanish service, now we're going to include the English service during our Thursday nights. But what we do is really get down to business. Now we, we discuss and we go deep into the things of God, so it's going to be a little bit different than a Sunday morning preaching. So I just want to give you a forewarning and that's why I'm glad that we walked through Lamentations together because you were able to understand a little bit what Bible study kind of looked like. Now those were, once again, driven more as a devotional Bible study uh, this is more academic to a certain extent because we really want to understand uh, biblical truths and doctrines and theology. And this is what we've been leading our congregation to every Thursday, I mean every Wednesday night. So that's very important for us. And, and so what we want to do with the English service is do it at the same time. So we're going to be going alongside our Spanish service about the attributes of God. So I'm excited for that. And if you're excited, give God a round of applause and uh, we're going to jump in into a real life service. Uh, so this is going to be for you and it's going to be a little bit longer. I'm going to give you a fair warning. The Bible studies are a little longer. So have in mind, we're probably going to be doing 40 to 45 minutes. Sometimes we may even go a full hour. Now, how that's going to work out in a in-home setting with all the distractions. It may not work, but we're going to give it a try anyway. So I'm glad that, you, that you've been able to carve out some time. And I want to go with you before we get started to uh, the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament, just to get a jump start on the attributes. So in Isaiah chapter 46... We're going to begin to know God as He wants to be known through Scripture. So I love this portion of Scripture. I've read this a lot lately, especially during everything that's going on around us. I just want to remind people that God is still God and that God is very much in charge. But the prophet Isaiah, in chapter 46, starting from verse 5, read with me. To whom will you liken me and make me equal? And compare me that we may be alike. Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him. From his trouble. Verse 8 Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. There is none like our God and that is for the Christian and for the person, for the son and daughter of Christ, of God, that is important because nothing else in this world will compare to the grandeur of our Heavenly Father. So as we jump in to this preaching and teaching on the attributes of God, one important question must be answered. And in the sense, it's, We always start off our Bible studies this way. Why do we need to discuss and learn about the attributes of God? Why do we need to know theology? If you think about it, theology at its very core, sometimes it's generalized to just speak about everything about biblical uh, aspects and doctrines. But in reality, theology is theos. It's talking about God. It's the study of who God is and what He is. And so why is that important? Why do we need to do theology? Why should I be preoccupied with theology? And why should the church submit itself to long and extensive moments in studying theology? Those questions and that particular question is very important. And that's why... We have mentioned during various teachings that it does not fall on us, or any human being for that matter, to develop our own understanding of who or what God is. If that is the case, like in many circles, and this happens a lot, we would develop or create a God like us. Primarily because we can't think of anything higher than ourselves. We are limited in tending to define an unlimited god a god without limits and so very much during our time and during throughout the course of history people humanity have tried to figure out god for themselves and therefore we have a vast amount of religions history has taught us that the nature that nature itself even looking at the sun and the stars and the moon and the trees and the flowers That in itself is not enough to teach us who God is. Especially, we can see this come to mind uh, studying the 16th century and the Spanish invasion of the Americas or what they called the New Spain or the New World. The Spaniard missionaries tried to impose their concept of Dios, of God, into the minds of the native people. To them, Dios... or or God, was simply in addition to the many gods that they themselves served. To the native Indian people, the Catholic God even was absurd. And And you say, why? Well, it was absurd to them because it was a statue. Many times they would bring over from Spain and from Europe their images and their idols, and they would point the Indians to these idols and say, this is God. And God is all-powerful. And for the native Indian mind, that didn't make any sense because it was man-made. See, what the Indians thought God was, uh, was represented in nature, in the sun. The sun gave off warmth and and, and gave light. The rain, so God must be part of the rain because it, it gives and it nourishes the land. And so they thought that God was depicted or the multiple gods were depicted through the actions that they did. And so the Catholic God that came over from Spain was really just an addition and really nothing important to it. So they had a difficult time converting them as missionaries. So they were accustomed to this concept of polytheism, multiple forms of God or multiple gods all around them. And this was foundational to them. So they began to idolize these gods in various forms. And that's why we get the depictions in in the Aztec calendar and and in a lot of uh, artifacts that have been discovered From the 15th and 16th century, it's it's incredible what they thought God was. However, we can't rely on nature itself to teach us what God is, because those would be some of the conclusions that humanity would draw. Even nowadays, that's kind of something normal to think of Mother Earth as a form of deity. But what's the ultimate goal of theology then? What is our mission in the study of theology? And th- this serves as an introduction to what we're going to be doing for the next couple of months, possibly, maybe even a year. To discuss the attributes of God without really understanding an introduction to concepts of God in, in, in postmodern and modern day, in the modern day, is, will become rather difficult. So we need to understand how various people have approached this single question. How do we study God and how do we get to know God? For us, the ultimate goal in this study is a a multiplication of the son and daughters of God, of the church in the area of worship. For us, the study of theology is... It goes further than knowledge-based. For us, the study of theology is really getting to the core fundamental aspect of worship. That is our primary goal. That is what we want to see happen in your life. If you're part of Vida Abundante and you call Vida Abundante your church, part of this Bible study, my, my, my main mission isn't to feed you knowledge. You could go to school for that. You could go to seminary for that. It isn't knowledge only that we want to provide. It is what happens when we, with that knowledge in our spirits. This is why part of discipleship is so important and Bible study is so important because it feeds the soul and it provides the soul a deeper understanding of who the God of the universe is. And what that reproduces is worship, a profound sense of awe and giving God worship. That, my friends is what we really want to achieve during this time together. and even in on Sunday morning. so so we are hardcore into doctrine and theology ultimately because it modifies and it forms our life. And so I want to give you some introductions to worship, in this sense, be, before we go any further, and I may be biased, but one of my favorite theologians of the 16th century is John Calvin, not because of the the, the name that he has and the movements he studied, but once you go beyond the surface of John Calvin and, and what many consider Calvinism and all these other streams of theology that have come from Calvinism, once you go beyond that surface and you discover his writings and the way he pastored and ministered in in the 16th century Geneva, it, it becomes rather clear who he thought he was before a great God. And so John Calvin opens up his magisterial work that is called the Institutes of the Christian Religion. This is basically uh, volumes or two big volumes of his thought and belief system uh, according to scripture. So he wrote it all out and systematized it for, for the church so it can educate the church on everything God. So that's important because in these institutes, as a systematic theology per se, John Calvin points the reader immediately to the glorious God. In the first couple of pages, if you have a version of the Institutes of the Christian Religion, look it up or even go online. I think they have some PDF versions available, but the first beginning chapters and the first beginning pages of, of the book are incredible because they draw our attention directly to the glory of God. Here is what Calvin understands. One must know themselves in order to fully know God and understand God. This is so because the grim reality of who we are in comparison to the majesty of God is stunning. And you and I can, are, can very much advocate for that same thought. Myself, my life, In comparison to God, in reality, there is no comparison. But he says, I love what he says. I'm going to be reading several of his portions from the Institutes to hopefully pique your interest, so you could probably pick up a a copy one day. He says, Our very poverty better discloses the infinitude of benefits reposing in God the miserable ruin into which the rebellion of our first man has cast on us especially compels us to look upward, end quote. He also goes on to say, Accordingly, the knowledge of ourselves not only arouses us to seek God, but also, as it were, leads us by the hand to find Him, end quote. This, for Calvin, ultimately leads to worship. That's why he says later on, and I quote, Suppose we but once begin to raise our thoughts to God and to ponder His nature and how completely perfect are His righteousness, wisdom, and power, the straight edge to which we must be shaped. Then, What masquerading earlier as righteousness was pleasing in us will soon grow filthy in its consummate wickedness. What wonderfully impressed us under the name of wisdom will stink in its very foolishness. End quote. So therefore, for Calvin, the knowledge of God ought to, and I quote, arouse us to the worship of God, but also awaken and encourage us to the hope of a future life." End quote. What the reformers like Calvin understood was that worship in their day needed to be reformed, needed to go beyond superstition, as Luther would say, needed to go on magical practice, as Luther would say. And, And Calvin identified this in the Roman Catholic Church as, as being a, a liturgy of superstition, something that seemed on the surface to be emotionally driven and magical, but really had no essence. And so what the reformers did was begin a complete reformation of what the church understood as worship. Now you ask yourself, What does that have to do with anything that we're going to be studying about? Well, the concept here is when the church doesn't know their God, when the church doesn't know theology, it deviates from the teachings of Scripture. So if you understand the Reformation of the 16th century and you realize that the Reformers were calling out not only a correct form of worship needed to be reformed, but all of this corrupt uh, issues in, in the church needed to be reformed as well. People were selling uh, the, to profit money for the church. They were selling practically their souls in, in indulgences. Uh, it, there's stories that priests and bishops, they would not even live or be in their church for an extended period of time. They were off in their vacation homes during most of the year. They were absent from their parishes. It's incredible what the the vast majority of things that needed to be reformed in the Roman Catholic system because they didn't understand who their God was. And so when the reformers come into the picture, they need or they see a need for reform in worship because the church didn't know who they worshiped. It didn't know who their God was. And so therefore, the liturgy gets reformed and reshaped into word-driven. That's why they needed to hear the the word of God constantly. It was proclamation-driven. So the preaching of the word was done consistently. It, It was focused on the sacrifice of Christ. And that's why Calvin would argue that we needed to do the Lord's Supper every time the church met. The council in Geneva didn't allow it at the time, but it was an advocacy for doing it consistently because it was bringing to memory what Christ has done. So it was word-centered, proclamation-centered, and Christ-centered. As they celebrated the Lord's table as much as they could, and they put the Lord's table at the end of their liturgy at the end of their worship order and this was done in order to allow the congregation to properly respond to the work of Christ in adoration for what Christ had accomplished so you see in 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 the reformed circles in, in Zurich in, in Geneva in, in Wittenberg it, it was it was a reformation of worship because they knew who they were worshiping and what he had done through Christ. This is important, friends. The worship order isn't just arbitrary. It isn't pastors sitting down saying, hey, what's the best way we can do church? Hey, this seems cool. Hey, that seems interesting. Hey, what if we add this? It goes to direct the person to God and to give God proper worship. So the finished work of Christ was at the heart of the Reformation. And so praise and thanksgiving was a natural response for the worshipers. Solus Christus, or Christ alone, in the heart meant soli deo gloria in the lips or on the lips. To God alone be the glory. So friends, as we dive into the study of God and the attributes of God, soli deo gloria is at the core. Give God glory because we know who we are, first and foremost, before a great God, and we know what he has accomplished through Christ to give us that motivation of proper worship. So throughout this study, some of the topics of discussion or conversation we will be having, and this is just to prepare you to to know what we're going to be talking about. Like I told you at the beginning, it's going to get academic, but again, our mission is proper worship. So some of the topics we'll discuss, and this isn't exhaustive, but it will cover some of the areas, for example, will be on the modes of theism, or how people have approached understanding God. Uh, There's classical theism, as well as process theology and what those mean. Uh, This is just an introduction to pique your curiosity, but to keep you engaged on the issues that we're going to be discussing. We'll also talk about God throughout history in the modern period and in the postmodern period. What did Descartes uh, bring to the picture that is so interesting? What did the Enlightenment do to the concepts of God? What did the scientific revolution do for the understanding of God? So this becomes critical thinking as a churchgoer and as a church member to understand this and to know this so that once again, you are before a great God worshiping the true God of Scripture. And we'll culminate or we'll finalize our study together going through the vast attributes of God. The whole purpose of this is to discuss the attributes of God because they're details of who God is and what He has done and what He is doing in our very lives and in most cases, I'm not going to get in it here, but I like this lingo of communicable attributes and incommunicable attributes. Now that may sound a little weird, but communicate, I like that, that terminology because the way there are some attributes or distinctions about God that he communicates to his people in the sense of sharing them with his people per, per se God is love, so he requires us to be loving. God is holy, so he requires us to be holy. But then there's another set of incommunicable attributes. And some theologians have dissected three areas, but we'll focus on two major ones, uh, which is communicable attributes and the incommunicable attributes. And this incommunicable attributes are, are things that God doesn't communicate or share with His creation, for instance, His omnipresence. He doesn't share that with us because none of us can be omnipresent or or uh, omnipotent, which is all-powerful. So there's some things or or God's sovereignty that God does not share with His creation. And for us to know that and understand that is very important. But that will finalize our time together. And I, I see that, far down in the future, but they're going to be great moments of study and and getting us familiar with these concepts of God. So friends, uh, this is a little bit different. So uh, I want to be a little bit more casual. At the same time, I want to be very detailed. So the approach is a little bit more casual because we're taking time to study here. So I will go slow. I'm not going to rush through this. If it takes us half a year to discuss this, so be it. If it takes us a year, so be it. What I want to do is is to be very intentional on the time we spend together. And so this introduction for me is very important that you understand what what we're looking at here. I could have easily jumped into the attributes of God one by one and knock them off in 10 weeks that's not what our intention is once again as we've been repeating this it is the mission our mission in the study of the attributes of God is worship if you could become a better worshiper that's what we're that's what our goal is so as a brief introduction that we started with, let's begin to discuss as a form of introduction into the topic. Now, in our first lesson, if this was a class setting, we will discuss this question of knowing the essence of God or knowing the full glory of God. We, just, we, we started our, our study asking the question, why is it important to study theology? Our second question that we're going to begin to answer during these next weeks, months, possibly year, is are we able to know the essence of God? And I'm talking about all of God and all of his glory. That is a question that has a lot of connotations Involved in it, in the way we process our understanding of God. So, for this brief section, I want to go to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 33. Now, in Exodus chapter 33, we have Moses before God. Now, there, it's happened before. It's not the only time in the book of Exodus that this happens. But this passage and several of the passages here will become very important for us to understand how to do the study of God. So in this case, if you look at Exodus chapter 33, uh, we'll, we'll zoom in on verse 14. We'll go through the context as we develop this further down in the weeks. But in verse 14 of chapter 33, the word of God says, And he said, this is God speaking, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. So God speaking here to Moses, Moses is before God, God speaks to Moses and tells him that his presence he will go with them. He promises to be with Moses and his people. That is what God promises to be. This is from early early on. We see this in Abraham's time too, but 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 to focus in on Moses a little bit. Uh, It it focuses on a supreme promise. In the early chapter of Exodus, like in in chapters 3, God identifies himself as I am who I am, or I will be who I will be, meaning that he will stay faithful to his covenant promises. He will be their God. That is who God is. Yahweh, the Lord, is I am who I am, or I will be who I will be with his people to promise and to make a covenant of being present. So I want you to understand that right now. If you can highlight that, if you can write that down, realize that God's presence is promised. That's the whole goal. God with his people. God with Moses and his people. This is who God is, a God who is willing and is revealing himself to his people. What I love about this verse is that this word presence always catches my attention. It catches my attention because the Hebrew word for presence is panech or panech and and That literally means face. It's the noun for face or the front of something or the head of a figure. So, what's interesting to me is that in most of the cases that God says, I will be with you or come before me, he is talking about his face, which brings up a ton of questions, and we'll try to answer them as as we go, but this again demonstrates to us the proximity. God is near, so much so that if God really did have a face, we'd be able to see it. So it eliminates this concept immediately for the Christian. When you begin to read the Bible, you begin to understand that God is near, that God is not a distant God, as a deist would claim. That God is not far off in the universe, relaxing, doing nothing. God is near. He is close. His face will be with Moses. So this this becomes interesting and it becomes very important to understand what this means. This word... When it's in relation to God, it promises to be the guide of God's people. We could literally translate this to say, my face will go with you. It is also used as a subject to a divine action or God's actions. I love what it says in Isaiah chapter 63 could write this down because I'm going to be reading a ton of scripture. So just write this down. Isaiah chapter 63 verse 9. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence or his face saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. This is what God does. That's what the presence of God does. That's what the face of God does. It saves its people. So the presence of God is a saving presence. His presence or Panecha also represents hope. In Psalm chapter 4 verse 6 there are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. This face here represents hope, a shining of hope before the people of God. Israel was called to be before the Lord, his face was to be their place of worship. So, in the proximity of God to his people, Being in that realm of his presence, it was for the sense of worship. It was for the beginning of what we know today, being caught up in the presence of God in worship. So in Exodus, in a later chapter, chapter 34, verse 24, the word of God says, For I will cast out nations before you, and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord or in the face of the Lord, your God three times in the year. That is where you will be before God's immediate presence in worship. God called His people to worship before Him. That also entails... That God desires to be worshipped in the congregation of his people. How important is that nowadays? We've been yearning a time to come together, friends. I, I'm I'm really like up to here having to just talk to a camera this entire time. I don't I don't get to see you. I don't get to see if you're falling asleep. I don't get to see your reactions. I mean, this has been draining on many of us to just go to a camera and and talk. This is not what God's people were intended to do. And it's not that I want you to see me physically. It's that together, the congregation came before God. And together, they worship the face of the Lord or the presence of the Lord. Always in a metaphorical sense, and you'll understand that. As we go along, on the negative context or a negative connotation of the presence or the face of God, we can read in Deuteronomy chapter 31 verse 17, then my anger will be kindled against them in that day and I will forsake them and hide my face from them. And they will be devoured and many evils and troubles will come upon them so that they will say in that day have not these evils come upon us because our God is not amongst us. So the negative aspect of the face of God is that when he removes it, when he removes his presence uh, troubles and evils come upon his people. What we are the, the, motive, the motif that we keep hearing here is God with his people. That's what God does. That's what he wants to do with his people. There is proximity. There is this notion of togetherness, of unity for the purposes of worship and the purposes of God showing his divine favor and hope upon his people. Another negative that we recently read in, the, in our study of Lamentations is, for example, in Lamentations chapter 4, verse 16. The Lord Himself, or His face, has scattered them. He will regard them no more. No honor was shown to the priests, no favor to the elders. So in the negative sense, when God removes it, His face from His people, evils come upon them. But there is an understanding, too, that When God does come before them, as he says here in in Lamentations chapter 4.16, he scatters them himself. So what we learn in Lamentations was very important. God is also involved not only in the blessings, but he is also involved in the pain and in the suffering. And so God takes it upon himself to do so. His proximity is meant to be hopeful, but it also brings suffering if we are caught in sin. Ezekiel chapter 7, verse 22. I will turn my face from them, and they shall profane my treasured place. Robbers shall enter and profane it. So once again, the negative aspect of God removing his face is is just utter destruction. There's no protection, there's no more worship, and there's just devastation, and lamentation, and suffering everywhere. Once again, God is a relational God and desires to be with his people. Moses said that God led the people from Egypt through the face and his great power. His face is equated with his power as the means through which God did his mighty deeds. That's why, my friends, in the New Testament, God's face will also liberate the sinners and all those rebellious people from their sin because they see the glory of God in the face of Christ. And so it's interesting because here, now prosopon, which is the Greek word, is used metaphorically and literally at the same time to describe God's glory in the person of Christ. Paul says that in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 6. Hear what Paul says. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So the God that was with his people in the Old Testament, the God that walked with his people in the Old Testament, the God that provided freedom and fought and protection and and, and was with his people, the God that demanded worship from the people and, and therefore saved his people is the same God in the New Testament now shining his light through the face of Jesus Christ. So once again, humanity, the people of God, are saved by the face of God or the presence of God in Jesus Christ now in the New Testament. What the word ultimately represents, then friends, to close this part off, is God's relationship with his people. God is never distant, nor is he preoccupied with other more quote-unquote, important things. He has promised to be with his people because he is a relational God. And so in Genesis, chapter 32, verse 30, so Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Friends, the word face, Paneja teaches us he is able to be known. Our life, therefore, must be characterized and formed, shaped, modeled by our proximity to his presence. And so, friends, in Christ, there's only one level of proximity. We're either in or we're out. And so as we study theology and the attributes of God, this is who your God is. This is what your God wants. And this is what your God has designed. He has shown his face upon Jesus Christ. And so therefore, his creation is saved by looking upon Jesus. So come into this study, friends, with this deep understanding that God is relational and therefore deserves our worship. Because when we measure ourselves in comparison to our great God, we fall very short. So guys, that was the introduction to our series in the Attributes of God We haven't, we're we're about halfway through the introduction, so we're we're still not in our complete study, but hang in there. Once again, it took us a while to get through Lamentations. It's going to get us a while to get through all of these attributes, but I'm glad that you're signing in. Invite your friends and, and just spend some time together learning and discussing what God is according to Scripture. I'll see you here next week, same time, same place, and hopefully one day present. God bless.